Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. On to today's programme for now and joining me today on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Joe Saxton. Joe works at NFP Synergy, a specialist in market research for non-profits including quant and qual research as well as consultancy on strategy and market positioning. Uh, Joe, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme. Very good to be here. It, likewise, it's such a pleasure having you um, with us, Joe. Um, normally, at this point in the show, we would dive straight in to the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start there because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But how has it affected you and your operations? It's affected us in, in a number of ways. Um it's affected us because our, our clients, charities and, and not-for-profit organizations have been deeply affected in a number of ways. Um, on the income front, people like National Trust have had to close their properties. Many charities have had to shut their retail shops or finding their opening and shutting and opening and shutting. Lots of fundraising events aren't happening. So for a whole variety of reasons, our clients don't have as much money which means they, in turn, are wondering whether market research is, is the biggest priority for the money they have left. Uh, and so we've seen a number of um, our income streams go down, particularly the project side of things. Um, but also we're seeing people wanting to understand what's happening in the outside world. So we're doing uh, research for people who are wanting to understand what's happening with COVID, public attitudes towards COVID, and particularly how people see charities fitting in. And what can you see the sort of long-term effect being on charities going forward from here? Well, I think the long-term effects at this time uh, are very difficult to work out, partly because um, people used to say, uh, you know, a week is a long time in politics. Well, the foreseeable future at the moment is little more than three months in many cases, particularly because we have the, the forces at the moment of not just COVID, but we have Brexit coming down the track and also the impact of the US election all of which make it an extremely turbulent uh, future to predict. Uh, and that in, t- in turn makes it very difficult for both our clients and us to predict what life is going to be like in six months' time, let alone a year's time. And that's part of the big challenge in, in running any kind of organisation at the moment. Um, it's a huge challenge for leaders in all walks of life, isn't it? Purely because... Um it's difficult to be proactive and to plan for the future when there is so much uncertainty out there. And so, as you say, there is no long term anymore that you can plan for. It's having to strike a balance instead between having plans in place for the future and being proactive, but then being able to be adaptive and reactive, on the other hand, to the changing guidelines, changing circumstances. That's right. It's, it's a really curious mixture of needing to be reactive, not not kind of get, say, no, our strategy says this, we can't possibly deviate from it, because the strategy that was good for three months ago or six months ago may have completely changed. But also, at the same time, um, you can't be too up in the air and too flexible. Staff want certainty. They want to know their, their salaries are going to be paid. They want to know they're going to have a job in three or six months' time. They They want to feel some degree of 
reassurance that their leaders know what's going on. And so too many kind of like, what do you think we should be doing? It, it can be as worrying as it is um, uh, engaging and, and flexible and, and, and inclusive. So it, it's a difficult balance to get right, that's for sure. And it's really sort of made those words, it's lonely at the top, ring true during a time like this, hasn't it? Because leaders have really had to shoulder the responsibility of stepping up, being beacons of inspiration and reassurance to the people around them when the information out there isn't always clear. So when you are sort of shouldering all of that responsibility in a leadership role, but there isn't anybody above you to consult, as it were, unlike is the case when you're an employee. Where is it that you tend to look to for a bit of inspiration and direction as and when you need it as a leader? Well, well, interesting. One of the things that we've done in in COVID is do a lot more communicating with colleagues. So uh, my two fellow directors at NFB Synergy, Tim and Kim, we have a, a weekly session every Friday where we, we get on the video call and talk about what's happened in the previous week, talk about what's happening with the finance side of things, what's happening with the people side of things, what are the things that we think we'll need to be doing. Uh, and we've got a new wider management team uh, where we're meeting once a month uh, and we're talking about things. And of course, one of the challenges is that life goes on as normal. One of our staff is pregnant at the moment. We need to work out how we're going to replace uh, during her maternity leave, uh, what she is going to be doing in terms of maternity leave, what the challenges are, uh, are set out. And of course, those kind of regular routine things that, that you know, go on happening, uh, and they're as much part of what needs to be responded to as anything that's dramatic to do with COVID. And of course, um, with all of this is the challenge of doing things remotely and leading from a distance in a lot of cases, which is an interesting challenge in and of itself. But also um, there's the debate around working practices that's now going to have come about as a result of this. And because of just the prolonged anxiety and almost also the effect on consumer confidence that's going to come as a result of this pandemic, even when we see COVID being no longer an issue and hopefully we do have a working vaccine in place in the next year, it could take some time for things to revert back to what we knew as normal and indeed could you ever see our working practices reverting back to the way they were with the office coming back in vogue or do you think that there will be changes uh, i think i think both of those are true i think there will be changes i think it won't be the same as before uh, but i think in two years time we will still be working differently uh, and to give you an example one of the things that we see is that uh, the 20-somethings who work for us, the people who are in a shared house somewhere, I think have a very different experience of, of, of working from home than somebody who's already bought a house, mm. who's got a spare back bedroom and so on. Uh, and in particular, I think starting as a new employee with an organization where you, you normally might have met with a whole group of other people, um, socialized together, had a chat together, met new people, but actually now you're sitting at home in a rather crappy bed sit because you, that's all you could afford. I, th- I think those kind of experiences are going to be very different. So I think people in their 30s and 40s and 50s kind of will go, yeah, that's, this workplace is not so bad, is it? But actually the people new into the workplace, and particularly new graduates, not only mm. are they struggling to find jobs, but when they do, it may be a very different experience because they're being asked to to work remotely compared to work in the office. And I think, therefore, that group in particular will be keen to work in the office. And certainly that's what we see in our workplace. We have a number of people who like going into the office, we're able to do it with all the social distancing, uh, and they like having, even if it's only three or four of them, working together in the office rather than being sat at home. 
And there's certainly the mental health benefit of getting into the office as well, because it alleviates that social isolation element of the lockdown that we've seen recently too. Oh, oh, absolutely. And and there's the camaraderie, there's the getting together. And actually, there's just the journey into work, you know, whether it's bicycling or walking or even using public transport. Many people like that, that, that change in the rhythm from sitting at home all day. And just for those younger generations of aspiring leaders that may be out there looking at the economic impact of COVID and are downhearted at what that's going to do to their employment prospects, as somebody who's been successful in business yourself, what advice would you give them to really sort of get them to pick up their heads and get on the road to success? I think there are a number of key things that people should be learning. Uh, One of which is, you know, it's almost impossible to get it right first time. So, so trying things and failing is part of, of the landscape for anyone on their development journey. Uh, and, and, you know, actually never be ashamed of having tried something and felt it's much better. Tried something out, learned lots from it and discovered it didn't quite work as well. Uh, and the second thing I would say is, you know, look at people like me. Um, now, I hope I'm a, a role model for people in the best possible sense. But I may also be a role model in the worst possible sense. And that's really important to learn from as well. Look at Joe Saxon and go, you know what? I can't believe he handled it that way. When, when I'm in those kind of positions, uh, I'll learn to do it better this way or better that way. Learn, um, learn from poor examples and bad role models as well as you learn from good role models. Because learning and watching people and saying, how can I do that better? I don't think you should have done that. Is is really important because none of us are perfect. All of us have lots to learn, uh, and I would hate anyone to think the only thing they can learn from me is good. They may learn lots of things you know, that they should do better. And I have to tell you, my staff team would say learning that Joe Saxon's jokes are awful and you should never repeat them would be definitely one of the things that they would put on that list. Mm, it's. An important thing to take away that actually, because um, essentially what um, you're saying is that leadership isn't just about necessarily learning positive lessons from people, but it's about also taking lessons from the bad leaders and actually thinking, well, maybe this is something that I wouldn't do when sort of forming my own leadership model. You certainly can learn more from negative experiences as much as positive ones. And learning, as you say, that sort of key L word, that is what leadership fundamentally is all about. We never, ever are a finished product in our role in our profession it's a constant process of continuous improvement and continuous development and there are so many ways for us to do that there are so many resources and so many people out there that we can learn from because as leaders even we're certainly not lone wolves either are we well we're certainly not lone wolves and we have to go on learning and indeed part of the joy is to go on learning um i remember um managing somebody 20 years ago who said I really thought, think I've learned all there is to learn. And you think, Jesus, you poor chap, you're barely into your 30s and you think you've learned it all. Uh, and conversely, I listened to um, uh, James Dyson yesterday saying, you know, I'm 73 and I'm still learning every day. Uh, and I think those kind of um, role models of people who say, just go on learning throughout your entire life, really important uh, because that's the way people get better. Um, the great management guru, Tom Peters, once said, Feedback is, 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 is the breakfast of champions. And it's that feedback of, I could have done this better. Why didn't I learn? What can I do? Is what makes people get better every single day. Uh, and it's one of the joys and challenges of, of, of working life and personal life is to say, how could I do that better? What is it I've learned? What, what should I be trying to make sure that next time I have to face that situation, I'm better at it? And what sort of resources do you tend to sort of seek out yourself, uh, Joe, when looking to uh, to learn things and pick up new elements of leadership? 
Um, I, I tend to read quite a lot of um, books about things. Um, I've recently read uh, the the biography of Simon Bolivar and um, how he uh, liberated five or six countries in South America 200 years ago, which is an absolutely fascinating story of somebody who was a classic leader, but also was full of flaws and faults uh, in, in a whole variety of areas, but had extraordinary drive and extraordinary energy, and actually died before the age of 50. Mm. Um, so th- those kind of biographies are really interesting to see how those kind of people work, what, 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 why he was so successful, and also why, as he got later in his life, did it all go so hideously wrong? So I'm, I do enjoy a good historical biography. Uh, I recently read a really interesting book um, looking at the psychology uh, uh, that actually doesn't sound it, uh, but applies to a lot of her work, Thinking Fast and Slow by uh, Daniel Kahneman, I think is a really interesting book. Uh, looking at the psychology of lots of what goes on in our brain. It has a whole range of settings uh, in in the work situation as well. Mm, Sounds like some incredible resources. Of course, Simon Bolivar's uh, name is one that I do know for sure. I was a Hispanist at university myself, so that's a name I've come across several times, absolutely. Um, and um, just before, um, Joe, we do wrap things up on uh, today's programme, because I am conscious that our time together is starting to draw to a close. Um, we know that over the course of the year, uh, the next few months, the new normal as it's being built is going to be here to stay, and it's something we're going to have to grapple with and continue to get used to. But as well as dealing with those challenges over the course of the next 12 months. Hopefully that is a time frame within which we will have a working vaccine, fingers crossed, and can start to focus on leaving COVID-19 behind and focusing on the long-term future. So over this period of time, what is it that you're hoping to achieve at NFP Synergy specifically? And indeed, where do you see yourselves this time in a year? Well, I hope uh, this time in a year that we will be uh, have returned to profit we we will make a slight loss, not too bad this year, but we will make a loss. Um, uh, and that means we've got to focus on getting better in a number of areas of particular expertise. We're looking at some of the audiences that are um, typically harder to reach uh, than normal. We've done some really interesting research with the Bain community. We're just finishing off a project mm. with the LGBTQ community, and we're looking at disability. These are audiences that are typically a little bit more expensive, a little bit harder to research. Uh, but actually really important for our clients, for charities and not-for-profit organizations. Uh, we'll want it working to develop our staff skills um, and try and make sure uh, that what we're doing is uh, really building the, the skills of individuals, both in our quantum quant areas, but also the specialist areas of expertise. Uh, but also what we're wanting to do, we, we have a range of things that we publish for free, and we want to make sure we go on using that, not only uh, to improve our own marketing out there so people know what we're doing, but also to provide valuable insights at a time when actually a lot of charities may not have the normal resources. So we can provide things that help them understand the, the world of, of, of charities and how the public is seeing it and how MPs are seeing it. We think that's a valuable resource and we hope it'll be good for our clients and good for our business. Mm, sounds like some fantastic ambitions um, and over the course of the year the next uh, few months I wish you all the luck in the world Joe in starting to make some of these a reality and I actually think just given how enlightening it's been having you join us on the programme today it would be absolutely fantastic both for myself and for the listeners to catch up and have you back on the show just to see how things are coming along and we can then assess exactly what's gone on in the time between our discussions as well I would love to do that Scott 
I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. It's been such a pleasure welcoming you onto the programme today and I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the air with us. And most importantly, until we do touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on as well. That's very good. And um, I hope everything goes well with you as well. Likewise. Um, I have to say, I will reiterate that message again to every single one of our listeners tuning into the programme today. Please do continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to welcome NFP Synergy's Joe Saxton onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding various senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. And that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. 
what we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the 
challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be 
considerably adjusted was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh 
cut, uh, shut down. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely.
Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare. 
mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps 
to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.